From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Hurricane Maria, the devastating storm that raked the Caribbean, destroyed Puerto Rico's aging power grid with one notable exception. Puerto Rico has the largest wind farm in the Caribbean, and we just got news that it survived the hurricane intact. Every one of its, I think, 44 turbines is operating just as before the hurricane. Now the island could reimagine its energy mix with microgrids powered by renewables. Also, problems for farmers coping with global warming. The amount of extreme rainfall we've gotten has increased fully 71%. That means that Pennsylvania farmers are dealing with this paradox of way too much water at certain points of the year, punctuated by short but often fairly intense drought periods. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRI and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Puerto Rico was once covered by electric shades of green, lush tropical trees and plants that Hurricane Maria stripped to bare brown twigs. And people there are still stripped of the basic necessities, medical care, food and fresh water, and living mostly without lights in neighborhoods stinky with moldy garbage and broken sewers. The winds ripped Puerto Rico's electric power grid apart, twisting it into a tangle of more than 30,000 miles of downed power and transmission lines that could take months, if not years, to restore. Since it all has to be rebuilt anyway, Robert Engelman, a senior fellow at Worldwatch Institute, says now is the time to boost renewables and convert the island's power system to more local mini and microgrids. Bob Engelman joins me now. Welcome back to Living on Earth. Thank you, Steve. Good to be back. Bob, from what you know about energy and renewable energy, how do you think Puerto Rico ought to rebuild its system there? Well, I think it's important to first state that the the real priority in Puerto Rico is saving lives and uh, restoring power as quickly as possible. Obviously, water and other basic services people need. That's the urgent need right now. Second thing, it has a lot to do with what Puerto Ricans want. It's not something that you and I can decide from Boston or Washington, D.C., you know, what exactly they should do. They've got to be involved in the process. But the third thing to say is they have an opportunity to start thinking things fresh. And Puerto Rico, like the rest of the Caribbean, has enormous renewable energy resources right there on the island. The sunshine is more than just the draw for tourists. It's actually quite strong. The power of solar irradiance to generate solar electricity is twice as strong as it is in Germany or Denmark, which themselves have the bulk of solar power that's installed in the world as a whole. And it's similar for wind. The trade winds that blow across the Caribbean and that brought uh, Christopher Columbus to the, the Caribbean in 1492, they blow between 10 and 30 miles per hour almost constantly. And these are very, very good wind speeds for wind turbines. Bob, you wrote a letter to the New York Times, and you ask why should these islands rely on brittle centralized electric grids and buy imported fossil fuels when electricity could flow through flexible community grids based on locally harvest wind and solar energy? What do you mean by flexible community grids? Well, there's a lot more you can do with small grids than with large grids. It's easier to make them smart and responsive to their users. They frequently involve more public participation, community decisions about pricing, fuel mix. Communities might be more enthusiastic, for example, about 
using renewable energy than importing fossil fuels, as is the case of almost all the energy production, or 98% anyway, the energy production that's going on in Puerto Rico. And of course, to what extent is it a zero-sum game between renewable and fossil fuel? I would think that a distributed energy system could encompass both. Absolutely. The way to think about it is a little bit like, you know, whether meat is the center of your plate or meat is a side dish when people are starting to move toward vegetarianism. You don't have to choose one or the other, but you can diminish the dominance of the one that's causing the most problems. In the case of fossil fuel, it's important frequently in a transition period to use it as backup, for example. The sun doesn't always shine, the wind doesn't always blow. So absolutely, they can work together, but the goal would be for, especially for economic reasons, but also for environmental reasons, to move as close to dominance and eventually complete the reliance on renewable energy as possible. And Bob, you're not talking about people being completely off the grid, but being on whatever local or wide area grid there is. How could storage systems help Puerto Rico make the most of its renewable resources? Well, batteries can be integrated with grids of any size. They make renewable energy much more feasible as a really important part of your baseload in, in any size grid, whether it's a small community grid or a centralized grid like Puerto Rico had. And in fact, Tesla, which is knows a lot about this and has probably been developing batteries more intensively and rapidly than probably any other company because they need them for their cars, has in fact donated a number of what are called power wall battery packs. These are home-based sort of small refrigerator size packs that can enable homes to save the power that they get from the sun during the day so they can use it in the nighttime and at other times, cloudy weather, et cetera. Bob, how resilient can solar and wind energy infrastructure be in a disaster such as a major hurricane that, well, as we know, completely trashed Puerto Rico? Right. Well, here's the good news. Puerto Rico has the largest wind farm in the Caribbean. And we just got news that it survived the hurricane intact. Every one of its, I think, 44 turbines is operating just as before the hurricane. That's amazing. So that's a a part of its infrastructure that wasn't destroyed. That said, uh, one of its other much smaller wind farms did suffer some rotor damage because the rotors didn't close down the way they're supposed to in high winds. Wind turbines these days, the best of them are built to withstand about a Category 3 hurricane. But as we know, Puerto Rico got hit by a Category 4 hurricane when Maria landed. Uh, So there is an issue. It's not to say that, you know, it's perfectly resilient. Photovoltaic panels can blow off of roofs. So this is not a, you know, binary situation where renewable is completely resilient and non-renewable is totally vulnerable. But I would say that renewable has big advantages. You don't have to worry about having port facilities to import your fuels. It's going to be an issue for Puerto Rico whether it can import the fossil fuels it needs for a system given its port situations. There are a lot of reasons to think that in general, renewable energy is likely to be more resilient. Again, particularly if you're talking about distributed energy that's small scale, that communities can control, that's ideally close to the ground, doesn't require long distance transmission lines, etc. I think in, on balance, resilience favors renewable energy well over fossil fuel energy. Let's talk about cost now. In some places, wind and solar are cheaper than fossil fuel, certainly cheaper than coal. But one thing about renewable energy is you pretty much pay for all that energy up front. You buy the solar cells, you buy the wind turbines, and after that, the costs are pretty cheap. That's right. Puerto Rico has a lot of financial problems. Officially, it's, what, $75 billion in debt even before Maria. So at the end of the day, how feasible do you think it's going to be for Puerto Rico to be investing in renewable energy? 
I think it will be difficult for Puerto Rico to itself to invest in renewable energy, which is a shame because over the long term, it would be really helpful to its economy. But there is a, a federal act that was passed late in the Obama administration with bipartisan support, I might add, called PROMESA, which guarantees a bit of a break from creditors of the holders of Puerto Rico's bonds and puts together an oversight board to make a plan for how Puerto Rico can handle its debt problems. And I would suggest that we gather this oversight board in San Juan and take a look at Puerto Rico's situation and see if some of its debt could be delayed, for example, and uh, perhaps uh, money could be diverted from what Puerto Rico has to repay to at least assessing the potential to integrate as much sustainable and renewable energy as possible as we repair the basic energy infrastructure of Puerto Rico. I think it's really critical that we make a collective national effort to, I think, look at Puerto Rico as both for the benefits of its own citizens and the benefit of the country as a whole, a kind of a laboratory for how to make renewable energy work. And that's one reason I suggested in a recent letter to the New York Times that we consider federal-private partnerships that take on some of these upfront costs, not as a bailout, but as a way of learning from what we can do in one island with 3.4 million Americans, how it can become self-sufficient in energy and resilient in energy and resilient against the kind of superstorms that are very likely to be hitting Puerto Rico in the coming decades. Some would say that Puerto Ricans have second-class citizenship when they're on the island. They can't vote for president of the United States or the Electoral College or get voting members of Congress. And that this is a considerable obstacle, perhaps, to this energy revolution that you're calling for, for Puerto Rico. How might one deal with that fact? How might America be able to move forward on the status of Puerto Rico at the same time that it responds to the devastating emergency there? Well, I think one important point is that as Puerto Rico develops in terms of its energy system and in terms of developing economically and in terms of how they handle the incredible emergency and disaster they've had to face, they're going to prove to the mainland American people who've been watching them that they're worthy of full citizenship and they have a right to be a state. They're more populous than a number of states we have. And it may be that I wouldn't necessarily call it a silver lining to this incredible disaster and emergency they've faced, but it may be that in their own resilience, in the resilience of the Puerto Rican people in dealing with this emergency and in working with the rest of America, the rest of the United States, there'll be more opportunity, more chance. People will be more sympathetic to the fact that they deserve full citizenship and full political and electoral participation in the United States representative democracy. So it's not just electricity when you say power to the people of Puerto Rico. <laughs> yeah, I'll let you go with that, but that's a good one. Power to the people of Puerto Rico. I, they're, they're certainly connected. There's no question that having a, a resilient, dependable power supply is critical to economic development, and economic development is critical to being fully integrated into the United States. Robert Engelman is a senior fellow and former president of the environmental think tank World Watch Institute. Bob, thanks so much for taking the time with me today. Thanks for having me, Steve. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you.
Hurricane Maria wiped out 80% of Puerto Rico's crops, shredding bananas and plantains and stripping coffee trees. In Florida, three-quarters of this year's orange crop was torn off by Hurricane Irma, and Texas farmers face huge losses from cotton and rice submerged by Hurricane Harvey. Global warming increases the intensity and duration of these storms, and we can expect the trend to continue. But it's not only violent storms that disrupt agriculture. Widespread droughts and heat waves make farming increasingly unpredictable. As Julie Grant of the Allegheny Front reports from Pennsylvania, there can be winners as well as losers. Farmer Matt Herbrook is glad he doesn't have to focus his vegetable crop on peppers again this year. In 2016, the weather was so hot and dry. Sometime in June, I could clearly see that this was going to be one brutal summer. He says temperatures were 5 to 10 degrees above average. And instead of the usual 12 inches of rain from May through August, they got only 2 inches all summer. It wasn't enough water to grow lettuce and leafy greens. So we went big into peppers and eggplants and things like that. Unfortunately, peppers are really not the most lucrative crop, but we had a lot of them, so that was nice. After 22 years of farming, Herbrook says it's undeniable. The climate is changing, and it's getting more extreme. It's not unusual at all in this area to go from in the 40s one night to 90, 36 hours later. It happens. And that's not normal. You know, I, the weather is crazy. I hear a lot about that from our farmers. That's Franklin Egan, Director of Education at PASA, the Pennsylvania Association for Sustainable Agriculture. And he says it's more than just talk. He points to data from the USDA that show while the amount of annual rainfall in Pennsylvania and the Northeast U.S. has increased only slightly in the past 50 years, the way it's coming down has changed. We've been getting a lot more um, extreme rainfall events. More than an inch of rain in a day is considered extreme. The amount of extreme rainfall we've gotten has increased fully 71%. It's a startling number and a far bigger change than in any other part of the country. And so if you put that together, you know, about the same annual rainfall, but more intense rainfall, that means that uh, Pennsylvania farmers are dealing with this paradox of way too much water at certain points of the year, punctuated by um, uh, short but often fairly intense drought periods. And both extreme wet and dry weather can make farming less reliable. And yet, Pennsylvania's Agriculture Secretary, Russell Redding, says climate change isn't all bad for farms in the region. I would say at this point that it, it is a mixed bag. According to Pennsylvania's climate assessment, last updated in 2015, those extreme rain events will get worse and summer heat waves will get more frequent and intense. So places like Harrisburg would feel more like Birmingham, Alabama. But whether that's good or bad largely depends on what a farm produces. Dairy, poultry and eggs, corn, vegetables, nuts and fruits are all produced in Pennsylvania. There are going to be winners in this conversation in terms of their ability to grow extended season and different crops. And there'll be a downside because there's a lot of production agriculture that will not be able to tolerate the continued swings of rainfall and temperatures. One example of that mixed bag, fruit. On the upside, Redding says as the climate warms, new varieties of fruit are already being grown here. We have apple varieties that would have been in the Shenandoah Valley uh, in Virginia that are now in Pennsylvania. So they're, they're real. 
Redding says improved farming practices could also be driving the success of these new varieties. On the downside, the warming conditions are implicated in new unwanted pests. The Agriculture Department recently issued a quarantine in six counties to prevent the spread of the spotted lanternfly, a black, red, and white insect that first appeared in Pennsylvania and the U.S. just a few years ago. It could devastate the state's tree fruits and grapevines. That becomes a major concern for us. For many farmers, these unanticipated changes and all the variability mean they have to continually adjust their plans to suit the warming weather. Dairies are adding air conditioning to keep cows cool enough to produce milk. In fields, more are adding irrigation systems for dry periods. And more crops are being grown in hoop houses for better protection from weather and pests. Vegetable farmer Matt Herbrick says for years now, he's been shifting away from working the fields in July. I just can't. I, stuff doesn't grow that well, and also, I'm not going out there and it's 95 degrees. And who wants to do that? But he also sees some benefits of climate change. Nowadays, October is still usually warm enough for planting, so he's still selling produce in November and December. I'm Julie Grant. Julie reports for the Pennsylvania Public Radio program, The Allegheny Front. Climate disruption can be tough on agriculture, and now there appears to be another danger to staple crops as carbon dioxide levels rise, nutrient loss. One expert in this field is physician Sam Myers, who recently published two papers looking at iron and protein levels in plants that get increased amounts of CO2 and how that may impact human health. Dr. Myers is a senior research scientist at Harvard and a director at the Planetary Health Alliance. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. Tell us how you believe this comes about, that increased carbon emissions and thus more photosynthesis actually can lead to a decline in nutrients. Well, for starters, we're not absolutely sure what it is that's causing the decline in nutrients. So whether or not it's related to increased photosynthesis, we actually don't know. It may be a direct effect of the carbon on the plants. But what we do know is that when we grow staple food crops at elevated concentrations of carbon dioxide approximating you know, where the world is going to be in the next 40 years or so, that those staple food crops lose a lot of their nutritional value, and particularly they lose iron, zinc, and protein. Give me a sense of just how much nutritional value they lose and why it's significant. So what we see in a paper we published a couple of years ago in Nature, we showed that staple food crops were losing between 5 and 10% of iron, zinc, and protein when grown at 550 parts per million. That sort of leaves a gigantic so what question, which we've been working on for the last two or three years, in which we estimate the diets of the populations of 152 countries. And we model how, if they continued to eat the same foods, these reductions of 5 or 10% in these nutrients, how many people would get pushed into risks of nutrient deficiencies, which have significant health effects. And what we found were on the order of 150 to 200 million people would be likely to be pushed into those deficiencies. And so that's why I say it's a significant reduction. Yeah. Talk to me about how many people around the world are at this point undernourished or have inappropriate nutrition in your view and how your finding compares to that. 
Well, so there are lots of different kinds of what we call malnutrition. There's too much food. So we obviously have a crisis of obesity really around the world now. There's too little food, which is a caloric problem. And then there are micronutrient deficiencies. And so a lot of the work that we've been doing has been focusing in on those micronutrients, in particular iron and zinc, as well as protein deficiency. And so around the world today, there are around 2 billion people so nearly a third of our population who suffer from micronutrient deficiencies. And so in the studies that we've done, we've looked at how many people would become newly deficient. But of course, there also are hundreds of millions or billions of people who would have their deficiencies further exacerbated. Talk to me about the health effects of these nutrient deficiencies, uh, zinc, iron, and so forth. So for zinc, the burdens of disease from zinc deficiency are calculated for children under the age of five. And zinc is an important component of our immune systems. And so what we've found is that children that have adequate zinc levels will die in much lower numbers from common infections like malaria, pneumonia, diarrheal disease. And so when you look at what are called the relative risks, the risks of dying from those diseases, they're much higher in children who are zinc deficient. For iron deficiency, there's a broader array of health effects. So pregnant women die in higher numbers giving birth. There's higher neonatal mortality, meaning death of infants at birth or soon after. You get reductions in IQ and intelligence, reductions in work capacity. So there are a variety of effects from inadequate iron intake. Can you briefly explain for me how you measured these nutrient levels in different parts of the world, the methodology you use, Sam? Yeah, so it's sort of been a two-step process. The first step is very direct, which is to grow staple food crops in open fields at elevated concentrations of carbon dioxide. And so if you imagine an open field, and in the middle of the field is a ring of carbon dioxide-emitting jets, and you grow a specific cultivar of a specific crop like wheat or rice, and outside the ring you grow the identical cultivar in the same soil, the same conditions, but at ambient, at regular CO2, levels, and you compare the nutrient content of the crops inside the ring where the CO2 is high versus outside the ring. And that's sort of step one, which allows you to estimate how much nutrient is changing as a result specifically of the CO2 effect. The second step is to estimate how much of these different foods people are eating. And to do that, we had to build something called the Global Expanded Nutrient Supply Database, which is a database of the per capita consumption for 152 different countries of 225 different foods with their nutrient densities, which we then used to model the total intake of things like iron and zinc for the populations of each of these 152 countries under today's CO2 conditions and under the CO2 conditions we anticipate by the middle of this century. And then you can look at the difference. Sam, where is this going to be the biggest problem? What parts of the world are going to be facing these kind of nutrient deficiencies? Well, so the deficiencies themselves are going to be most severe in South Asia and in Africa. In particular, India appears to be very vulnerable to these changes. We estimate about 50 million people in India alone would become 
protein deficient, as well as the large numbers of people who are already protein deficient, and throughout Africa. And it's really a question of what their underlying diets are. So people that have very little animal source food in their diet and are relying on crops like wheat and rice for large amounts of their iron, zinc, and protein intake, those are the most vulnerable populations. Sam, you're talking about parts of the planet that are going to have a lot of trouble from climate disruption, especially with drought or crazy monsoon seasons where already we see in Africa and in India problems with growing crops now. There's no question that certain parts of the world are going to be particularly vulnerable. And one of the issues that this kind of work, I think, brings into very sharp contrast is an issue of equity and social justice. Because if you think about where the carbon emissions are going to come from between now and 2050 or so to get us to 550 parts per million, and then you think about who's going to be vulnerable to those rising CO2 levels and experience nutritional deficiencies as a result, they're almost mirror images of each other. And so it's really the wealthy people in the wealthier parts of the world that are emitting much higher levels of carbon dioxide. And it's the poorer people in the poorer parts of the world that are suffering the consequences. And so it really does become an issue of social justice to think about how we take better care of those vulnerable populations. Dr. Myers, as you know, we began the present era around 275 parts per million of CO2. We're up to 400 now. Your research looks at 550, but to what extent might we be experiencing this loss in, in nutrient density even now with the increase of CO2? So it's a wonderful question. Essentially, if you think about how we would answer that question retrospectively, the easiest thing we could do would be to look for archived samples of grain, for example, that had been grown at an earlier time when carbon dioxide levels were lower. And the problem with that methodologically is that the cultivars that we grow of things like wheat and rice and soybeans are changing on average every three or four years. And and so there isn't a longitudinal series, there isn't a, a single cultivar that we can track over time that way. And so what we do know is that nutrient contents have been falling in crops for decades. And, you know, some of that is probably just that we've been breeding crops to be very high yielding without a lot of concern about their nutrient content. So some of that may just be a result of our breeding program, and some of it may be a result of CO2. But there was a wonderful piece of research that was done, I think, a year or two ago uh, by my colleague Lou Ziska at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, in which he did that analysis, but not for food crops. Instead, he looked at goldenrod. And it turns out that there are herbaria around the country that have been archiving specimens of goldenrod going back to the 1850s. And goldenrod is actually a very important plant for pollinators, particularly bees, because it's a late flowering plant, flowers in the autumn, and gives bees a lot of the pollen that they need over winter that feeds them before they become dormant. And so he looked at the pollen itself from goldenrod flowers going back to, I think it was 1851 or so. And what he found was that there's been a 30% reduction in the protein content of the goldenrod pollen between then 
and now. He then set about to actually reproduce that data in the laboratory by growing goldenrod at different carbon dioxide levels. And he showed that he could reproduce it perfectly and that it was essentially a linear relationship that as CO2 was rising, the protein content in the goldenrod pollen was falling. And so we do have that sort of anecdotal evidence to suggest that there may well be a linear effect and that we may well already be suffering the effects of rising carbon dioxide on the nutrient content of plants. What are some of the possible solutions to this crunch that's coming? Declining nutrient value with increased CO2 and other effects from climate disruption? Well, I mean, the first solution is to stop emitting so much carbon dioxide. So in public health, we talk about primary prevention. That would be primary prevention. So we need to think hard about ways that we can decarbonize our energy economy as quickly as possible. Secondary prevention would be things like biofortification of crops. So developing crop types that are enriched with respect to these nutrients like iron and zinc and protein, or breeding crops that are less sensitive to the CO2 effect. And there's some reason to believe that might be possible over time. Many of these vulnerable nations would do well to think about ways that they can increase dietary diversity so that their populations are consuming a wider variety of foods that give them a stronger nutritional base. So the first thing is to get countries recognizing that this is a threat developing as we speak and that they need to think about what's most appropriate for their particular populations. Physician Sam Myers is a senior research scientist at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and director of planetary health at the Planetary Health Alliance. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today, Sam. It's a great pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. We head out to sea for today's bird note to catch up with some of the most magnificent of the pelagic creatures off our shores. But as Michael Stein points out, though the adults may be glorious and graceful birds, the infants are, well, downright dumpy. Just a couple of dozen miles off the Pacific coast, immense dark birds with long saber-shaped wings glide without effort above the wave tops. These graceful giants are black-footed albatrosses, flying by the thousands near the edge of the continental shelf. Albatrosses arc and coast over the ocean for hours with hardly a flap of their wings. Making the most of wind currents and shifts in air pressure, these wondrous seabirds seem to levitate over the water. Black-footed albatross numbers peak off the coast in summer. Many adults return to the Hawaiian Islands during our winter and spring to court and nest on sandy islands. In Hawaiian waters, the black-footed albatross collects squid and masses of flying fish eggs with its long, hook-tipped bill. Adult birds may fly hundreds of miles at sea to provide food for the single goliath nestling, which looks more than a little like a portly, gray, recumbent version of Big Bird. I'm Michael Stein. Slide on over to our website, LOE.org, for some pictures.
Coming up, talking and listening to the animals. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and from a friend of Sailors for the Sea, working with boaters to restore ocean health. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Hello. On a warm afternoon in late summer, Thurber, the border collie, welcomes me into his home. He shares an old New Hampshire farmhouse with writer Cy Montgomery, and today they are joined by author Elizabeth Marshall Thomas. Cy is an old friend of Living on Earth who over the years has celebrated pigs, octopuses, sharks, pink dolphins, moon bears, and more with stories from around the globe. Elizabeth Marshall Thomas is noted for writing The Hidden Life of Dogs, a groundbreaking book probing dog psychology. Cy heads outside into her garden. All right, I will lead the way. Okay. These best-selling authors have teamed up on Tamed and Untamed, Close Encounters of the Animal Kind, a book of essays that explores how wild and domesticated creatures and people relate. The essays are adapted from a Boston Globe column they co-wrote that sometimes offered advice that, as I admits, raised some eyebrows. We kind of got in trouble for our first Q&A. Uh-oh. Someone wrote in and they said, you know... I've got this dog who barks, and I love him so much, and now I have this new boyfriend, and uh, he doesn't want me to keep the dog, which I do. And we said, you know, we normally don't recommend euthanasia, but your boyfriend's got to go. <laughs> <laughs> so you wrote this book with, with Cy Montgomery, Elizabeth Marshall Thomas, but both my producer Noble and I, when we were reading the book, had a lot of trouble figuring out whose voice was whose for each story in it. You had the same voice. How did that come about? Maybe we just had the same voice before we ever met. I, I bet that's it. We did think about that, and when, that's why with each chapter at the top we reveal which one of us is speaking. But I think Liz has been a very big influence on my writing. I think we come from the same heart. I mean, what we're saying in this book, in every single essay, whether it's about hyraxes, these little groundhog-sized relatives of elephants who live in Africa, or an octopus at the New England Aquarium, or the dog at your feet, these lives are so fascinating, so intricate, so mysterious, so thrilling and so worthy of our respect and affection and awe. That's what we're saying in every single essay, and that may be why that kind of heart comes through. There's a theme throughout your book. It's a finger-wagging theme about people who abandon their animals, who abandon their pets. Yeah, Yeah, I have two cats at home who my neighbor found as kittens by the side of a long, empty road. Somebody just tossed them out of a car. And she couldn't take them, but I could. And I, she called me, and I, of course, came and got them. <laughs> and they're with me now. They're wonderful cats. They were Russian blues, and if you buy one, it's expensive. So the person didn't even know that she could have sold them for hundreds of dollars. I mean, but that's not the point. The point is that how can you do that? How can you do a thing like that? Another woman uh, released a rabbit in my field. And the rabbit had never been alone before, and he'd never been out in the wild before, so to speak. He had no idea what to do, and also it was the middle of the field, so he could be seen from every direction. He wasn't happy about that. 
And he saw our house in the distance, and he came to it, and he went into the garage. The woman, I'm sure she was letting him free. She thought that, you know, animals are on automatic pilot. When they get in the woods, they'll know exactly what to do, and and he'd be happy. And so it wasn't an evil thing on her part, but it didn't work. The dogs found him before I did, and they killed him. And uh, I think people don't think along those lines. We're alike in every other way with every other mammal, okay? We have hearts, we have livers, we have kidneys. But the brains aren't the same. Of course they're the same. Why wouldn't an animal feel the same way we do? Of course they do. And the idea that animals don't think is insane. I mean, they don't think about their shopping list. They don't think about what they're going to wear tomorrow. But they think. And anthropomorphism is one of those bugbears that we take on also in the book and in our columns and in our other work. The idea that when you talk about an animal having thoughts and feelings, that this is anthropomorphic, well, that's ridiculous. Of, of course they have thoughts and feelings. A much worse mistake is to, to think that they don't have thoughts and feelings. It's easy to make a mistake, and even with a human being, attribute your own thoughts and feelings to them. All of us have bought a birthday present for someone that didn't go over. All of us have asked someone out on a date that didn't want to go. And that happens with animals, too. One of the essays is um, about this, in fact, that people can make mistakes. Like the veterinarian who thought that the Tasmanian devil was so calm it was yawning. Well, then it bit her. It was a gape threat. It wasn't a yawn. But, you know, you, you can make that mistake, but a much bigger mistake is to think that they don't have thoughts and feelings. Uh, there's a new word in the English language, and it was invented by the... He's a famous scientist. He's a biologist and primatologist, Franz Duval. He invented the word anthropodenial, which is the opposite of anthropomorphism, and it means presenting an animal as if it did not have human characteristics. Now... I think Cy wrote this essay about going to see a um, sort of a dog circus. Tell me that. We went together. Liz wrote that, but I took her. Oh, yeah. That was, what was it? It was some kind of celebration. It was so much fun. It was fabulous. We had a, and what we saw was all the dogs in the show, they did things you've never seen a dog or a person or anything do before. Like? Like, well, one, one dog jumped up. A little dog jumped up on his own on the t- trainer's hand, and stood on his front her front legs, on his hand with her hind legs in the air, and he lifted it up like that, and she I reached my arm way up in the sky. <laughs> he lifted his arm way up, and she re- retained the pose and came down. And I mean, a person couldn't do that. I mean, a person can't do a lot of things. That's no comparison. But they would be trembling with excitement. And then they'd be called to do something, and they'd rush off and do it. They loved it. All of these dogs were strays or abandoned or from shelters or they found on the street wandering, homeless. Dogs that somebody else thought was worthless and tossed it. And these dogs were phenomenal, what what they were able to do. So this is what people toss when they get rid of their pets. Some people think like, oh, you know, training a, a dog is just forcing it to do some horrible thing. That No, they love having something to do, as do a lot of animals. They'd rather have something to do than nothing to do all And day. people are the same. So there we are. And they love our company. And, in fact, Thurber, our dog, is taking, I, I kind of hate to admit this because I purposely did not have children, 
But he's taking dance lessons right now. <laughs> <laughs> My dogs are learning not to pee in the house. <laughs> now, so you're teaching your dog to dance. Uh, in, Cy, in this book, there's another dance scene with a Snowball, pair. the dancing cockatoo. So describe <laughs> this for me. Well, I actually found out about Snowball, the dancing cockatoo, on YouTube. He was an unwanted bird. He was um, dropped off at this parrot rescue facility in Indiana, and he came with a CD. And when he was dropped off, the fellow told Irina Schultz, you should play that and see what happened. Well, she had a lot of birds to take care of, so she didn't get a chance to do it right away, but when she did, she put it on. It was by the Backstreet Boys. It was one of their really great rocking songs. Well, the cockatoo starts rocking out, and he's his crest is rising, his uh, wings are spreading, his tail feathers spreading, his feet are going up and down, and he's doing it to the beat of the music. He's also calling out. She puts a she makes a video of this, puts it on YouTube. It went viral. Well, turns out this was the beginning of an important discovery about abilities that parrots have. They have an ability that was previously thought to belong only to so-called higher minds like ours, and that is called beat perception and synchronization. They can anticipate the next beat, even though for you and me, we unconsciously tap our feet to the beat, but other animals apparently can't do this, but parrots can, and it's probably associated with vocal learning. So I, of course, had to see this, I had to write about it, and I spent one of my birthdays with Snowball rocking out to the tunes of my choice. A researcher named Annie Patel did a project on this. He'd written a wonderful book on music in the brain, and he also saw this YouTube video and worked with Irene Schultz to produce a, a, actually several papers now. He found that lots of parrots can do this and some other birds can do it, and it only works with certain tempi. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think at some point in your book you say that rats like music. Yes, rats do like music. What kind um, of music? Well, you know, I don't think this has been as systematically tested. But rats are very like us in many ways. Rats laugh. If you record it and then speed it up or slow it down, you can hear them laughing. And they laugh when they're tickled, just like we do. And these are animals that everybody thinks of as vermin. And yet they are so like us. They enjoy the same kind of stuff that we do. Well, we use rats, uh, we use mice for experiments that we think will help our bodies. So we may think we're nothing like them, but of course we really are, biologically speaking, just physically speaking. And we can sometimes get to animals' thoughts, and rats are one of the species that we can sometimes almost literally see their thoughts. When they run a maze... Um, you can see what their brain waves are doing as they come to different parts of the maze. And recently, there was an experiment looking at what their brain waves looked like when rats were dreaming. Well, they could see 
the brainwaves were exactly the same as when the rats were running the maze. The rats were dreaming about their work, just like we dream about our days and our work. In the book, there was, well, kind of this theme of animals with bad reputations among certain humans. How conscious was that decision, do you think? I think we, we really did want to rehabilitate some of these reputations for animals because if you remove a bad reputation, you can begin to appreciate the creature for what it is. Rats are one example. Um, great white sharks. Octopuses, even. Octopuses were thought of these horrible monsters that Victor Hugo certainly didn't do them any good in the PR department. But they're, they're not at all. It's just preconceived notions, and it's fun to knock those down and instead welcome people into the company of these great animals and appreciate them for what they really are. Yeah, and there are ways of looking at it. I was thinking of, I think it's in one of the essays, if you see a fly or something like that, you swat it. Even as Elizabeth Marshall Thomas makes her point, it's clear that any stray insect or tick in Cy Montgomery's expansive yard is likely to be gobbled up by an ever-present flock. If an eagle, magnificent eagle, was the size of a fly, you'd swat it. Now, these ladies, um, they're two-legged and they have uh, these red combs. They're chickens. They're coming towards us. Someplace in this book you say that chickens actually name people, or they seem to. Yeah, this was not my discovery. This was my friend and colleague, Melissa Cowie's discovery. She's the author of A Kid's Guide to Keeping Chickens, which is how I met her. Well, she was out with her hens one morning just throwing scratch and noticed that one of her chickens, a six-year-old named Oyster, was using a different voice than usual. And she knows what her chickens are saying. She's decoded quite a, a number of different vocalizations like, oh, I've just laid an egg, or hi, how are you, or oh my God, there's a hawk over there. They have lots of different things that we know what they say. But there was this one vocalization that she'd never heard before, and soon everyone in the coop was using it. And they just used it when Melissa walked into the coop. Well, we figured out that that was the name the chickens had devised for her. And this happens with a lot of animals. They have specific names for specific events, specific predators, or maybe even specific people. And the fact that a regular person just paying attention to the chickens in her backyard made this huge discovery about the intelligence of an animal that so many of us think of as ordinary just shows us how splendid and exciting this world is no matter what animal or plant or landscape you set your eyes on. There's just so much out there to be revealed. In a book like this, what you're trying to get across is, isn't this earth splendid? Aren't these animals wonderful? And don't we owe them our affection and respect. And even though this is you know, just a book of essays that we, we loved writing, it's part of a growing assemblage of writing from people who are really, I think, believing that we can build a more compassionate world. 
you alter your behavior once you realize that this chicken loves her life. She doesn't particularly want to have her head chopped off and her flesh eaten. And, you know, the ocean, which is full of octopuses and sharks and fish, we can't be dumping pollutants and garbage and plastics into it if these individual lives are going to suffer. We can't continue to alter the climate of our of our world if we realize it's full of lives just as wondrous as our own. Cy Montgomery and Elizabeth Marshall Thomas are co-authors of Tamed and Untamed, Close Encounters of the Animal Kind. Thank you both for spending this time with us. Oh, thank you so much for having us. We're so glad that you came. Next time on Living on Earth, damage to tropical forests is making global warming worse. The threats are mainly anthropogenic. The first one is deforestation, but for the first time we were able to quantify the losses due also to degradation and disturbance. How the tropics went from soaking up carbon to releasing it. That's next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week with a chuckling bark. These white-tailed prairie dogs may be laughing at producer Jeff Rice at Deseret Ranch in northern Utah as he's recording their calls with a large parabolic microphone. But their well-being may not be a laughing matter. These prairie dogs have lost much of their original range due to drought and expanded grazing, but the Fish and Wildlife Service reckons they are still plentiful enough not to need endangered species listing. Jeff Rice recorded these rodents for the University of Utah Marriott Library, westernsoundscape.org. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Savannah Christensen, Jenny Doring, Noble Ingram, Jamie Kaiser, Don Lyman, Helen Palmer, Olivia Reardon, Adelaide Chen, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show with help from John Gesso and Jake Rigo. Allison Lierish-Dean composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org and like us, please, on our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth, and we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, Developing the Next Generation of Environmental Leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Energy Foundation, serving the public interest by helping to build a strong, clean energy economy. From Gilman Ordway and from Solar City, America's solar power provider, Solar City is dedicated to revolutionizing the way energy is delivered by giving customers a renewable alternative to fossil fuels. Information at 888-997-1703. That's 888-997-1703. PRI Public Radio International.